Hey guys, welcome back to another video. It is Clay. Today I thought I would answer a few questions that I've received, some on YouTube, some through the audio question feature I put on my website. If you wanna leave me an audio question, find the link below this video and go leave me an audio question. So the first question I have here is from a YouTube comment. It says, I am quite interested in the tangent about vague hope you went on. I hope you consider fleshing that out more in another video. I fear I've gotten played by these for a while. Thanks. So what do I mean when I say vague hope? It's kind of this tongue-in-cheek phrase I've been using the last couple of years to describe this certain situation or the certain thing that people seem to do. And I think it can come out in harmless ways, but it can also come out in more serious ways. So in general though, vague hope is about pushing aside legitimate concerns, legitimate problems, and instead accepting this sort of warm, fuzzy, you know, conclusion instead. So generally speaking, there's no plan, there's no action, there's no accountability. It just sort of makes people feel better. It kind of eases people's anxiety. It's kind of like a get well soon card with like a cheesy quote. You know, you could have just been in a really serious car accident, you've like broken your neck, you know, you're paraplegic in the, in the hospital and somebody sends you, you know, this little inspirational message that doesn't really help, but it might, you know, make them feel like they're actually doing something. So what are some other examples of vague hope? I'm gonna read a few here. Things like, Everything happens for a reason. But everything happens for a reason. Let's not worry about that problem. Let's not try to solve that issue. Let's just assume that it's all in his hands. He's got it all taken care of. Uh, there's a plan here, don't worry. Just, just, just follow the plan. Or other sayings like, you know, you have to look through the rain in order to see a rainbow. A diamond is just a lump of coal that did well under pressure. Now I'm just an old chunk of coal. But I'm gonna be a diamond someday. Sort of this assumption that, you know, if you're gonna get somewhere good, you have to have all these problems. The problem is that sometimes people might just be making actual bad decisions and they need to stop making those decisions. Um, these vague hope quotes, though, sort of almost confirm those bad decisions and say, don't worry, you're on your way to something better. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Clearly, there's some things that can seriously maim you if they don't kill you. If you break your back and you are now in a wheelchair, like that doesn't make you stronger, right? So all these examples I just gave you are kind of harmless examples. They're not really hurting anybody. And in some cases, they might actually help. They might make people feel better. They might help people not give up. And so I can't really knock it for that. I don't want to come across as this like negative person who's knocking all these, these vague hope quotes. However, here's where I think it does become a little damaging. Sometimes people will use these things to almost rug sweep legitimate problems. Like let's say there's some kind of a relationship conflict going on, some kind of thing that should be dealt with. And instead, people kind of just rug sweep it and use one of these vague hope things to kind of uh, bring it all back to the warm and fuzzies. One time, was having a conversation with a person and they were basically trying to imply that, you know, if I can just trust in God that everything will be okay and everything will be okay in the end. And I said, well, what about the guy who got burned in the cage by ISIS? 
uh, because he was a Christian. So they actually put him in a cage. They asked him, are you a Christian? Will you renounce Christianity? The guy said no, and so they burned him in a cage. And I was like, well, did everything work out okay for that guy? Like, is that, you know, is this an example of what you're saying? Like, I can think of all kinds of examples where it didn't work out. Like, there's lots of times where it wasn't okay. People that kind of clutch onto that vague hope really hate these kinds of things. And it, they, they would much rather just sort of not answer those questions, not deal with that, and instead just come back to, well, we just, we just all got to trust in God and it'll all be okay kind of idea. So I don't want to pick on Christians. There's obviously lots of other examples of vague hope. It could be, you know, relationship troubles. And to be honest, I went through a lot of this when I was married. Like, there was a lot of issues and problems that I felt we needed to deal with. And, but in order to even deal with them, you first have to admit they are problems, right? And if somebody is kind of clutching onto this vague hope that, you know, everything's going to be okay, we just, we just got to work through it. Um, it, you know, throwing out all these kind of sayings, it doesn't really ever allow you to identify the problem, first of all, and then work on it. If you are throwing out vague hope, it's almost saying that problem isn't something that we really have to worry about. So in a way, vague hope is the opposite of admitting a problem exists. And that's why I think in the context of relationships, in the context of life where you're trying to answer difficult questions, vague hope is an extremely frustrating thing for a person like me who is trying to figure these things out, who is trying to resolve conflict, who is trying to make relationships stronger. Because vague hope is usually something that somebody throws out in order to prevent that process from happening. So vague hope kind of can come out in other ways that are basically manipulative. Let's say faux apologies or apologies that aren't really like a real apology. Like an example might be somebody says some blanket apology like, I'm sorry if I ever did anything to hurt you. On the surface, it's like, oh, this person's apologizing. They're saying something Nice, they're apologizing. But the thing is, they haven't really identified what the problem is. They're just kind of throwing out this blanket thing, if I ever did anything to hurt you. So first of all, they don't even know if they did it. They don't even know what they did if they did. I've actually tested people who've said this before. So I used to have a relationship with somebody who was very good at these faux apologies. And it got to the point where I started testing her a little bit. You know, if she said, I'm so sorry for all the things that I did. And I, and I would say, well, like, what were some of those things? And no joke, when I asked that question, she said, well, why don't you tell me some of the things and then I'll apologize for them. So here's a person apologizing for something. They can't even think of a, a single example of what to apologize for. How can you apologize for something when you haven't even identified it as a problem first? It's sort of this vague hope way of trying to trick people into thinking that an apology has been made. That's really what vague hope is to me. It's like making people feel good without the meat below it. So the last example I'll give is probably the most dangerous version of vague hope. And it's when narcissists use it to kind of love bomb you. So oftentimes with narcissistic relationships, there's these phases. So the initial phase is this love bombing phase where they 
basically bomb you with love. That's why it's called that. And it, it's the phase that really sucks a person into a narcissistic relationship. Eventually all that ends, of course, and all this abuse ensues. So if a person actually has the courage to leave that narcissistic relationship in the end, what can often happen is the love bombing kind of starts over again after the breakup and they call it hoovering. That's kind of the technical term for a love bombing episode that happens after a breakup. So this hoovering phase is where likely the most dangerous type of vague hope comes out. It's where this person, and you'll know what I mean if you've ever broken up with a narcissist, but it's where this person now tries to convince you that they've changed, they finally understand, they finally have figured out, they've solved all the problems, all you have to do is give them one more chance. And then they throw out all this vague hope to support it, like, you know, everything's gonna be okay, I love you now, I completely understand, you were right all along. And if you've been in a narcissistic relationship, you'll know what I'm talking about here, because you could go through years of trying to get them to understand. You finally get to the end of your rope, you leave the relationship, and all of a sudden they pretend like they finally understand. But if you kind of go back to those faux apologies, actually I have a whole video on faux apologies if you want to watch it. If you're good at identifying fake apologies, you'll start to notice that a lot of their apologies aren't real apologies, obviously. To be honest, it takes nerves of steel to resist this kind of vague hope. You have to be so sure of yourself, which is often just not the case because a lot of people that get involved with a narcissist are somewhat codependent to a lot codependent. And often codependent people don't trust themselves. So here's this narcissist that is now telling them everything they want to hear and they, they almost making the person feel like they're a little bit crazy even for leaving, right? And which is a type, you know, you can have these gaslighting episodes and if you fall for it, you can get sucked right in. So that's why I think a lot of times when people break up with these narcissistic people, they often just get sucked right back in and they're right back into a relationship. Um, and then they soon realize that nothing has changed, that love bombing stage ends again and it goes right back to exactly the way it's always been. Anyway, so that is what I mean by vague hope if I ever use it in a video. Hopefully that makes sense. If anybody has any questions about that, feel free to let me know. Otherwise, let's move on to the next question here. All right, so the next question I have here is a voice question. So let's just listen to that and then I will answer. Hey Clay, I'm Adam. I live in Cairo, Egypt. I'm 18 years old, 18 years old and I'm um, an INFJ. I was just wondering if you've ever wondered whether uh, or not you're a ENFJ because these two types are very similar, the INFJ and ENFJ. They have the same functions that just in different order. At first I thought yeah, I believe that you were an INFJ as well because I related to a lot of the stuff you were talking about. But um, I watch more and more of your videos and it feels like you're more people-oriented oriented than I am. Uh, so that's more FE, uh, extroverted feeling, um, than introverted intu intuition. And all the talk uh, you were talking about in some of your videos about you had to suppress your uh, introverted intuition when you were when you were younger, and it just feels like I could never have done that. Um, 
sometimes would suppress my extroverted feeling instead. So I was just wondering if you've ever thought about it. All right, thanks for that question. So yeah, is it possible that I'm an ENFJ, not an INFJ? So I've had people tell me I'm all kinds of different personalities in the comments. I've had people say I'm an INFJ. I've had people say I'm an INTJ. Um, I've had people say I'm INTP. I've had people say I'm an ISFJ. I've had people say I'm an ISFP. Um, I think maybe, have I had any, I don't think I've had anybody say I'm an INFP. So the first thing is, in these videos, I really do project myself. And that's something that I've worked on for a number of years. I've actually shot a lot of corporate video over the years. And I used to coach people on how to come across well in videos. And it's about really being overly exuberant compared to your normal self. If I just sort of talked how I would talk in real life, I might sound more monotone and I would definitely appear less extroverted, I guess. But in real life, I'm actually an extremely introverted person. Like I'm actually quite shy. Uh, you might not, might not realize that. I have a hard time approaching new people. When I am talking to new people, I am usually very quiet and very more in observant mode um, until I actually get to know a person. I know a couple ENFJs, two actually. Both are women and both of them are just extremely warm comforting people and you're right there is some similarities because introverted intuition so an INFJ has introverted intuition extroverted feeling and an ENFJ just flips those two functions so you still have the top two functions just in different orders so here's an interesting thing that I've heard about all introverts is that the first function is an introverted function. That's why they're an introvert. So in INFJ, the first function is an introverted intuition. And the thing about introverted functions is they're often hidden from view. So in INFJ, they're leading with this dominant introverted intuition. Oftentimes what other people, when they look at an INFJ, they won't really see the introverted intuition because it is it is very inside the person. It doesn't really get extroverted. That's why it's introverted. Um, the first extroverted function in INFJ is extroverted feeling. So oftentimes people will see extroverted feeling as the main thing in this person. So I've heard that oftentimes that's why INFJs can appear like ENFJs or often why INFJs get confused as extroverts in social situations, because the first extroverted function that people can actually observe in a person is this extroverted feeling. So they're gonna see this social harmony, this sort of interest in their own feelings, and can often assume that this person is an extrovert. That being said, um, what I've said in my very first video about suppressing the introverted intuition, I think the thing about all these things is there's there's so many different layers right like you've got your personality but then you might have all this upbringing or or even like personality disorders that are layered over top i think for myself i due to reasons i won't get into sort of have had codependent tendencies and i was quite codependent codependency is all about 
not trusting yourself, not validating yourself. So, and you know, if you wanna go learn more about this, go listen to Scott Morgan, because he talks quite a bit about certain INFJs, if they don't trust their intuition, if they don't trust their dominant introvert intuition, they can become these extreme people pleasers, because they don't have that dominant introvert intuition as like a trustworthy source. And I think that's why INFJs can get so screwed up, because they're not even using their dominant function anymore. So yes, if you are a healthy INFJ and you rely on intuition, which I do now, at this was in the past as I was growing up, at this point in my life, I, and it maybe doesn't come across that much in these videos because I will often really prepare what I'm gonna say for these videos and I have quite detailed notes. Um, I also cut out the gaps. Sometimes I'll just think for 30 seconds, 40 seconds in the middle of the, these videos multiple times throughout it, right? And that's why I have these little jump cuts because it actually shortens up the video. But if you actually were to hang out with me in real life, that introverted intuition would become more apparent because if you ask me questions, if I experience new information, um, as I absorb that information, introverted intuition is a bit of a slower process as it absorbs information and kind of tries to put this puzzle together and find the goal or find the thing in all this sort of information and data. Introverted intuitives are often very goal-orientated and can really lock in on a plan. ENFJs though, as you've pointed out, can also do that. So maybe it's difficult to tell the difference between an INFJ and an ENFJ if you're only looking at the top two functions. I think where it becomes more apparent is when you look at the third and fourth functions. So if you look at an ENFJ, the third function is extroverted sensing, and the fourth function is introverted thinking. Again, just flipped from an INFJ. An INFJ has introverted thinking in the third function, and extroverted sensing in the fourth. So at this point in my life, my introverted thinking is quite developed. It's actually something that I've really worked on. I've done a computer science degree. I've done a lot of math, a lot of logic-based exercises. Um, I really enjoy logical thinking. That all fits with child TI. So child is the third function, introverted thinking, TI. Child TI really manifests in a really specific way. It, it sort of manifests in this childlike logic, kind of looking at the world with these fresh eyes, not really tainted by, you know, a lot of culture and bureaucracy and things like that. That's why INFJs, if they've developed their introverted thinking, are quite logical. An ENFJ will be less like that because an introverted thinking, instead of being in the child position, it is now in the inferior position. And maybe I should do a, a more in-depth video with the differences here, but inferior introverted thinking is gonna look a lot different than healthy introverted thinking in an INFJ. In fact, at this point in my life, because I've sort of worked on my introverted thinking so much that sometimes I've, I've actually started to wonder, like about a week ago I started to wonder for about five minutes, maybe I'm actually an INTP. Because an INTP is dominant introverted thinking. And lately I feel very strong in my introverted thinking. Enough to even wonder that for a moment. But then, of course, I'm like, well, introverted intuition is also definitely something that I lead with. I come up with these theories before I even can prove them. 
And that's really what an INFJ should be strong at. Introverted intuition is almost this intuitive process to come up with things. And then you can use your introverted thinking to prove those theories. And in the end, you can have these very strong conclusions. On the other hand, an ENFJ has extroverted sensing in their child position. So that means they're going to be really strong at looking around and observing in the sensory world, almost like in a childlike way. So they're going to be like an INFJ is introverted thinking in a childlike way. An ENFJ is going to be more observant. And just that right there is something that for me is a little foreign. I would say I definitely relate more with extroverted sensing inferior, which is, you know, under stress, you start to, you know, lose track of the external world. You, you might lose things and uh, you almost can become unaware of your own body to the point where you're not eating. You're, you cut yourself and you don't even notice. Um, INFJs and INTJs both share that inferior function. To me, that really resonates with me. And to be honest, having that in a child position just wouldn't resonate with me at all. And then having introverted thinking inferior does not resonate. So I would say without a doubt that I could not be an ENFJ. Um, that's sort of my opinion on the matter. Everybody else is allowed to have their own opinion, of course. But yeah, it's maybe a good video topic for the future. Thanks for asking that question. All right, so the last question I'm going to do today is from Nathaniel. Let's play it. Hey, Clay. My name is Nathaniel. My question is, what is your advice to someone who, um, to a black INFJ? And I, I know that you yourself are not black, but some of the intricacies that, that you've explained with being an INFJ how, how do you see being black adds another layer to that? And that's my question to you. All right, so thanks very much for that question. I think it's an interesting question and one that I would be curious to hear, you know, an opinion on it. The problem is, is that because I'm not black, I'm not really sure that I'm even close to qualified to make any assumptions of what that would be like. I think the other problem is, is that where I live, so I live in British Columbia, Canada, there's just hardly any black people. I think right now I'm living in Kelowna, BC. I used to live in Vancouver, and that's where I went to school. I lived there for a while. Um, I actually looked at the stats. Vancouver only has 1% of the population is black. In Kelowna, where I live, it's actually only half a percent. There are other nationalities that live here. For example, in Vancouver, uh, it's 27% Chinese. So that's a pretty you know, big population of Chinese people. That's not even counting all the other people of sort of Asian descent. I mean, if I had to make some kind of guess, anytime you would take something that is a minority, like let's say uh, being an INFJ, and it's let's say only a 1% of the population, if you believe those stats, and then you take something like race, or gender, or sexual preference, or any, any way that you could kind of differentiate people and create another minority. If you then combined, you know, the rareness of this personality with the rareness of this, you know, group, um, what does that create if you sort of intersect two minorities? 
in a way, maybe you're much more qualified to talk about this. And in a way, I think it might be better if you make that video. What is it like to be a black INFJ? But if you make that video, um, post a link in the comments and uh, we can all listen to what your experience is on this topic. Anyway, guys, thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed this sort of new format where I just answered a few questions for the whole video. Um, if you have a question of your own, leave a comment, send me a message, or if you're brave enough, go leave an audio question. Have a great day. Thanks very much. See ya.